you'll come to someone and they say, okay, well, I want to figure out customer churn. And you're like, okay, well, I'll build this model, but I can't guarantee that it's going to be good. I can't guarantee it's going to be accurate in the first pass. But in the meantime, you have to figure out how long you're going to be at the client, how much value you're going to add. So it's, it's very, very hazy. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewell. Vicky Boykis is a senior consultant in machine learning and engineering, and she works with very large clients and brings a really interesting perspective on how they think about data science and machine learning. She also has a hilarious Twitter account and a really fascinating newsletter that we'll link to. And I'm really excited to talk to her today. So it's really nice to, to talk to you, Vicky. You know, could you tell me a little bit about your career and how you got into data science and, and, and where that began? Yeah, it's been a really interesting career, I think. Um, not on, not unlike a lot of other people, um, but a little bit different. So I don't have a comp sci background. I did an undergrad in economics at Penn State. And then I went into economic consulting, um, which was pretty unusual. And it was right around the time of the recession in 2007. So I was happy to find a job, actually, and even more so to find one in my industry. Um, but that involved doing a lot of spreadsheets, um, tracking global trade movements, uh, tracking internal projects, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I started working with data analytics there. And then for my next couple of jobs, I worked in data analytics. And then uh, for a job that I had in Philadelphia at Comcast, uh, I started working with big data. Um, so we had big data available, and there I started working with Hadoop and looking at big data what, and more what year of. That was 2012. Cool. I want to say. Yeah, so right around the time that it was starting to get really big, um, started working with that tool stack, and that involved me having to get a lot more technical. Um, so at the time I was doing primarily SQL, um, had some frustrations with just doing SQL with Hadoop. Uh, Hive was still relatively new, a lot of growing pains there. So I started working with that stack. Um, and then from there, I started doing more large scale data science sampling, programming, all of that, and then went on to my next job as a data science job. And I've been doing data science ever since, but ironically enough, I'm moving kind of away from data science now. And I, I actually wrote a post about this. I think the entire industry is moving a little bit in that direction. So not every job, but the industry on average, and more towards instrumenting the processes around data science. Um, so creating machine learning pipelines, creating foundations and structures that are really solid and kind of go end to end. So I think there's still a ton of jobs that are just pure analysis, but as the industry grows, as the amount of data that we work with grows, um, I think the whole industry as a whole is trying to get smarter about replicability. And that's where I'm working in now, more in the machine learning engineering space. So you think it's actually the bigger challenges now are becoming more engineering issues than than analysis issues? Yeah, I, th I think I agree with that, at least from my perspective. Um, so again, I'm a consultant, so I come into companies that kind of want to build out um, data science or data engineering platforms. And usually they're starting from, so usually the question will be, do we have data or or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. They have a question about, let's say, our sales going up or down and why. And then uh, we work backwards and say, okay, well, you actually don't have the data yet to do this. Mm -hmm. And you don't have a platform set up where you can reliably look at this stuff on a month to month basis. So mm -hmm. that's where a lot of the challenges that I see are now. Interesting. Is it maybe because you're going to um, companies now that are like a little bit 
further behind is that is that possible or or like kind of starting from scratch or or do you think like something's changing where people sort of expect to have a more built out processes and tools yeah i think it's the second one i think um if you look at the landscape of uh whatever the data tools landscape map that matt turk puts out every year so uh -huh. in 2011 and 2012 it was like a quarter of a page and it was just like hadoop and that was it. Um, and now I think poor Matt has to put together like 500 logos into a single page and there's an orchestration area and there's a tools area and there's an area just for tools around Spark and all that stuff. So I think people also, there's the expectation that if you have something, it should be productionizable. Um, mm -hmm. And even to the point where we now have notebooks, which are generally seen as like a, an exploration tool, um, there's also some movement for for example, Netflix recently has had around productionizing notebooks. So whatever workflow you're looking at, um, I think there's the expectation that in the end it be reproducible to be valuable. I see. It's funny, I, you know, my my last company, we sold into a lot of the kind of um, Fortune 500, you know, not necessarily Silicon Valley. And I, I always kind of really enjoyed seeing the different perspectives and like all the different um, applications. I, how has it been for you as a consultant? Is it does it feel more like frustrating or exciting or I guess what what is it like to kind of go into an organization and try to teach them how to how to build up these processes? Yeah. I think it's it's a little bit of both. Um so it's interesting because uh consulting as a data scientist involves both and I think this is actually true of all data science, but even more so of consulting. It involves both like the people piece and the um, technical piece. So you have to know what you're doing technically because you're the expert when you come into the company and you have to say, okay, this is how we want to do the architecture. But you're also going to be talking to people who maybe don't want this process at all. You're going to be talking to people who are disorganized. You're going to be talking to people who are for it, but don't necessarily understand it. And so a lot of that work is actually talking to people and building the case for this stuff as well. What is, um, like, what is a typical stack end up looking like these days? Oh, uh, it's hard to say. So I've dealt with uh, both companies, small and large. A lot, a lot of companies um, are increasingly in the cloud. So it's interesting. I don't think I have any GCP clients that I've dealt with. Um, AWS is, of course, probably the lead. And I did a Twitter question about this a couple months ago, like who's using what. AWS came out something like 60 to 70 percent. Um, Azure, I'm surprised, is really catching up. Um, I think even as uh, little as two to three years ago, they were squarely in third place. No one was even considering them, but now it's it's really growing. And I think part of that is Microsoft's leadership, uh, plus the fact that a lot of uh, companies in the retail space are not allowed to use AWS because they see them as a competitor um, and partially because they are stepping up their game in the tools that they're providing. Is there a particular offering from Azure that you like or you think is kind of driving some of this growth? I actually, um, ironically, I haven't used Azure a lot. Most of my work has been in AWS, but now that I'm seeing that people are more interested in it, I'm definitely going to have to start looking into it. Interesting. What about, um, like, is there any tool that you think is sort of like underrated that, you know, people like probably should be using or you, you recommend but people aren't using yet? Um, 
I want to say bash. That's kind of a good reputation. That's a really glib answer, but it's really true because a lot of the times when you come into these big, huge projects, you have five or six different AWS services spun up. You have GPUs, you have monitoring, you have all this stuff. And then you start thinking, okay, well, I have all this stuff. How am I going to use it for X? Um, well, oh, I can't test this locally. I can't do this locally. I can't sample the data. What am I going to do with it? So I really do think, and I find myself falling into this pattern too, where you use all this big data stuff, but then you don't use the stuff that you have available to you. And it's even easier these days when um, a lot of us are working with pretty high powered machines that you can do a lot locally as well. Interesting. So you, you run a lot of stuff locally? Uh, some, yeah, especially to test stuff, to prototype. Um, and in cloud environments, it's really hard to spin up those local environments. Um, so just even like to look at the data, to examine what you're dealing with, all of that stuff so you can do locally and you can bash, bash goes a long way towards that. So I know that you, you know, you can't talk about your individual customers, but could you kind of talk broadly about the, the sort of like questions that are driving the interest in, in more interest in data science right now? Like what are, what's like kind of top of mind? Like what would you expect going into like another fortune 500 company that, you know, the, the executives want out of their um, data science platform that they're not getting right now? Yeah, so the number one question is always to understand customers and understand what they're doing and understand how what the customers are doing ties directly to the bottom line. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways. Um, the one that I usually talk about, uh, which I've also written a blog post about, is churn. Everybody always wants to know churn. So how many people are leaving and why they're leaving your platform and how much money it's gonna cost you on a month to month basis. Everybody always wants to know that and I can guarantee in any given project, I'll see it. Um, and then uh, the second one is better understanding operational metrics. Um, there's sometimes not a lot of insight into that. And the third one would probably be classifying customers into different types of customers. Interesting. So like, what's like a deliverable that you would give a company around churn that they would be like excited about? Like, can you literally say I can predict churn like X percent better? Or is it more like, you know, if you see this signal, then that kind of means churn. Like, how do you, how do you actually like present some kind of analysis? Yeah. So lever, it would be literally a platform um, that has information to be able to predict what, what churn is going to be, for example, for next month. Um, usually what ends up happening is a lot of, the things that I'll deliver are the data engineering piece around getting all the data all together in one place so we can have a data lake, so we can actually deliver that churn piece. Hi, we'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about Weights and Biases. Weights and Biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time collaborate easily and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate weights and biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, 
videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying nodes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page, and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now, let's get back to the episode. How sophisticated are like would a churn prediction model be today? Like, you know, like are we talking like are, are people using like deep learning for this or um, like what's how, how complicated do these models get? Um, I don't think they're I think a lot of times in companies and even uh, before I was doing consulting, like in all my previous jobs, um, people are just impressed if you can get a model out the door a lot of the times um, in in overall industry. Um, so if you have something that you can benchmark against, it's um, it's seen as good, especially because there's so many steps in doing it. So first you have to collect the data, then you have to clean the data, then you have to go to the customer support team and say, does this thing like does someone calling in mean that the person might churn or not and then you have to collect all the manual data that they keep and keep track of that then you have to build the model then you have to do a prediction then you have to meet with the people who um, are in charge of this and explain your data to them and then there's going to be a back and forth there and then you have to productionalize all of that Um, So if you can get a model end to end going and I've come into companies where there was zero data science before. And so that's why I'm saying that you have to build it from the ground up. Um, Having that is fantastic. And just having metrics where there were no metrics before is a huge step up. And then the next step up is, of course, okay, well, why is this metric different this month? Why is this metric different that month? Um, So a lot of the churn models I've built have been with pretty um, basic stuff like logistic regression and decision trees. Um, I haven't seen any deep learning used for churn yet, but I'm sure that use case is around the corner. Well, I mean, okay, here's a specific question. I mean, like decision trees versus logistic regression, they they do kind of different things. Do you, like, do you have a particular one you start with or do you try both or some kind of hybrid? How do you think about that? Yeah, so again, depends on the data available. Um, Usually if, also depends on who's gonna be looking at it. Uh, usually if it's people at a higher level, um, mm-hmm. like executives that need to briefly glance and understand something immediately, the decision tree is very intuitive and very easy to explain. Um, and it can offer a number of different pathways for discussion. If you just need you know, some sort of model that spits out, is this person gonna churn, yes or no? Logistic regression is a little bit better for that. But again, um, depends on the, the stack that they have. Um, there's different software packages that are better or worse for logistic regression. Um, so for example, surprisingly, Python, as far as I know, does not have very good decision tree support. Um, you could do XGBoost, uh, which is not quite the same, but oh, so R is actually- it's, it's like multiple decision trees. Right, it's nested like, decision trees. You're doing yeah. boosted trees or something Yeah, like boosted, boosted trees, um, but it's not, 
it doesn't offer like the nice visual interpretation, I guess, as much as the art art part package. Um, so yeah, it really depends on like what you have available, what you can do, all that kind of stuff. But I would say all all any three of those are are my go tos for that. Interesting. So you'll build like a stable pipeline that includes R in it. Um, I've done it for stuff where I've had to prototype and kind of like throw it out. I actually have not built an R pipeline in production, although I know it's, it's very possible and increasingly becoming more and more possible. Interesting. Do you, so do you see, um, like, do you feel like R is kind of like here to stay or do you feel like it's getting replaced by Python? Like, where do you, where do I mean, you I, I think they're two different tools for two different things. Um, so I think R is fantastic for statistics, uh, for stuff that you're working on in probably smaller teams. Um, and Python is more like of a general, like if you need to glue stuff together and if you need to do deep learning and if you need to have stuff end to end, you'll use Python, but it's, um, basic statistical capabilities are not as good as, um, a lot of the R packages. Do you, um, how do you think about leaving your work in like a state where like another person can update it? Like how, um, how does that happen? Do you like, do you, do you ever check back in with like a client and see if you know anyone's like touched your model and it's still useful for them or um, that seems like it must be really hard. Yeah. So what we usually do is uh, we work side by side with the client. Um, so we'll have a person on the client side who is a data scientist so we can hand it off or uh, we'll have teams. And so we do education throughout the process so we can hand it off and not just be like, see ya. Like this person knows how to pick it up and knows how it was being built. I see, I see, that makes sense. And and you probably like pick the technologies they're familiar with or do you yeah, train them? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so we, we try to pick um, technologies that are not foreign to the client. So it's not like they're completely floundering and gone when we hand over PyTorch or something. So what's the biggest, um, like what's the biggest frustration in, in, in this whole process? Like where's like, like what, where do you see the biggest room for like potential improvement? Like if you can, I mean, I just, I think we've both, you know, kind of sold into big companies and you know, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, it's challenging. Like you don't want to say bad things about your clients, but also you do feel some like, come on, like this is ridiculous guys. Do you ever, do you have any, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> any patterns there? Uh, I think <laughs> the biggest, exactly for listening. <laughs> um, so I think, I think the biggest issue is trying to explain the benefit of machine learning in a way where it's not always exactly clear. Um, so like, for example, you'll come to someone and they say, okay, well, I want to figure out customer churn. And you're like, okay, well, I'll build this model, but I can't guarantee that it's going to be good. I can't guarantee it's going to be accurate in the first pass. But in the meantime, you have to figure out how long you're going to be at the client, how much value you're going to add. So it's, it's very, very hazy. Um, and I think that's a, more of a frustration for me, but it's also like an educational issue where you're not going to always get to a right answer, like the first sprint or the second sprint. Um, it's going to be an iterative process. And sometimes, like if you add stuff, the model will get worse. If you take stuff away, the model will get better. So it's, it's kind of hard because um, data science is always sold or like I see it being sold as this exact thing, but it's very much like an art process. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where some of the frustration is like it's not an exact thing and people expect it to be.
And I can imagine it's probably really hard going in like a prairie, not knowing like the amount of lift. If somebody's like, well, I, I for sure want this to get better. It's like, well, <laughs> right. with the data, how would you, how would you know? Exactly. How do, how do you like articulate that? So like, if someone's like, Hey, you know, tell me like how much, you know, you're going to improve my, my churn prediction. What, what would you say to that? Huh. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good one. I think uh, first, I don't know. I've actually never had it happen that someone was like, you have to improve my model by this much. It's usually like, let's create a model to do uh -huh. X, Y, or Z. Um, but what we usually do is benchmark against previous metrics that they have. And so the goal there is um, to say, look, we, we're not sure how much we can improve your model, but we can improve the process mm. around the model so that it can be a little clearer. When you look at like, um, like the kind of successful engagements where you feel like you, you know, you really made a difference versus the ones that are kind of more frustrating, are there, are there patterns? Like, did, like, are there things that kind of your, your sort of more successful clients are doing around data science that, that sets them up for success? Uh, usually working in a tight loop with me. Uh, so a lot of the times the companies I work at will be bigger. And so the data science team will be on one side, the data engineering team will be on one side, the project management team will be somewhere over there. And so I'll talk to all of them, but they don't talk to each other necessarily. Um, and so I, what I've seen work best is when I'm embedded with a developer, a data scientist, a project manager, they're all kind of working together towards the same thing because there's a big tendency to get siloed. So I think like companies, sometimes they debate internally about like, should we have like a single data science function or should we sort of embed the data scientists and have the different kind of, you know, functional teams hire um, data scientists for the individual products that they're working on. Do, do you have an opinion that it sounds like you, you might prefer data scientists being sort of embedded in specific products that or specific outcomes or, or do you think that it's better to keep it all as like a single function so you can you know maybe hire better people or create a better culture yeah i'm not really sure i have an opinion on that i've seen it work uh well different ways in different companies i think probably for smaller companies i would say like less than a thousand people or so you probably want to have a centralized um, team for for much, much larger companies, you probably want to have embedded data science teams. But then the danger is if you don't manage them centrally, then you have five or six data science teams working on the same questions. And I've definitely seen this at companies where it's just replicated work and they're just approaching it in different ways. Mm. So really, so, so, so you just, you see sort of success in, in sort of both. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I see. Um, do you see um, like, do you see like the like specific stages where you're like kind of prototyping something and then deployed into production? It sounds like, it sounds like you're really focused on sort of getting things like stable and, and in production, but do you sort of like prototype the steps first and then solidify them? Or how, how do you think about that? Like what yeah. do you specifically say to a client, like we're gonna prototype and then we're gonna deploy? Yeah, that's, that's usually what we do. Um, so usually I come into an environment and you're not really clear on what's going on in the environment at all, uh -huh. right? Um, you're just kind of thrown in and say, right. okay, go. So the first step is to gather and assess what's going on. What tools are they using? Who are the key people involved in this? Um, gather all of that out and then start to create a model from 
whatever data that you have available, see if you can actually create that model. And then, then many sprints later, take that model to production. It's usually never, you come in, you create something and then it's, it's already running. It. Um, it's usually uh, a lot, a lot of human steps in the middle to get it to that point. And so what's the biggest, like when you think about like kind of taking, I mean, I feel like everyone always underestimates the pain of taking like a prototype into production. Yeah. Like what, what are the, what are the biggest challenges that people might not expect or don't usually expect kind of going into that process? Uh, um, packaging the model is always a big one. How do you package it? So how, how do you typically package it? How do, like, what are the options? How does uh, that you could, you could pickle it. Um, huh? You could create a rest endpoint from it. You could put the model in a Docker container and expose uh, endpoints from it. I think that's something that I've seen happen more and more frequently, where the resulting output is um, essentially a web app or a web service, uh -huh. and something hits that web service and you get an inference point, uh -huh. right? Um, yeah, I would say those are the two, two big ways right now. Um, I think another big thing that people don't think about a lot is metadata management. Mm -hmm. And a lot of big companies want to do metadata management. Um, in fact, I've, I think almost every company that I've talked to over the last five years has said, we need some way to manage all the metadata and the data lake so that we can update the models and so that analysts can do the analysis. But there's no single tool for it. And I think only now um, have open source tools started coming out for it. Like what was it, Amundsen? Was it Uber that came out with Amundsen? I forget, um, but there's at least a couple of companies that have like a metadata management. And so the metadata is which variables are in the model. When was this uh, model updated? When was this table updated? All that kind of stuff. And surprisingly, people actually clamor for that more so than even visibility into how to manage the model. And so this is, you, you gave, I was kind of curious, what you're going to say about well, like what the metadata is, but it sounds like you gave examples of like this, there's metadata about the actual input data. Mm -hmm. And there's also metadata about like what the model is actually doing. Correct. So it sounds like both are important. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the biggest one is um, usually people create data lakes. Um, they throw everything into unstructured environments like S3, and then they need to understand what's actually going into those environments and where it's coming from, which is where the, metadata piece comes from. And I guess what kinds of trouble do people run into from like not having like a, like, you know, standardized metadata? Like what, what are the issues that come up? Uh, well, they wouldn't know, for example, which tables they can use for what, um, when those tables are being updated, how much, like whether those, oh, um, a, a big thing for big companies is whether that data is proprietary or not whether they're actually allowed to use it. Um, there's all sorts of controls around PII, um, all of that kind of stuff. And then usually um, for that data lake, analysts will also want to query it and they won't know what's in there at all. Um, wow. So it's another way to surface it in a way so that it doesn't impact production. So when analysts are hitting it, for example, they don't hit like the entire redshift table or the entire thing in BigQuery. Um, it's just they they know what the data is, what's available and what they can take from it and what they can. And so are most of the models that you're building, are they running in, in kind of like online mode or like are they do they kind of run offline in batches or? Um... Um, a mix, I would say most of the models that we built for clients are online. 
um, or I'm sorry, our batches. Um, I'm working on a personal project now that's online. Oh, cool. Um, so it's, Can you yeah. say what it is? Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually almost done with it. Um, so I'm working on learning uh, GPT-2. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's uh, like a medium think piece generator. How nice. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds too dangerous to release. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the idea is that you put in like the first few sentences of a VC blog posts in there and it generates uh, like a medium think piece for you. <laughs> so hopefully that'll be online. Um, but my inference time is five minutes right now. So maybe it won't. We'll see. <laughs> um do you um do you do any kind of um like monitoring of these models is that like an issue like because i I could sometimes we'll talk about like Mm -hmm. oh you know the input data changes and nobody notices and then the the model gets broken and nobody notices is is that like a real issue that that you've seen yeah so a lot of the i think we're just starting starting this as an industry. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about observability and catching model drift. And um, some of the larger companies like the FANG companies are really ahead in that space. In general, I would say it's very much an all unsolved issue and people usually um, still res- resort to checking the database and making sure that the data going in is okay. And that's kind of like the level of checking where we are. And I think people are just starting to say, okay, well, this is where the model was yesterday. This is uh-huh. where it is today. And this is where it should be tomorrow. Gotcha. Um, well, okay. I have a question I've been kind of dying to ask you, but it's oh, kind sure. of a little bit of a non secret. So I, I love like working with um, people that know Bash because I'm always embarrassed about my Bash skills. And I feel like I always like learn, do you have any like favorite Bash command that people might not know about since you said it's your favorite tool no, i i didn't say it was my favorite i said it was an overlooked tool overlooked i don't think tool. i don't consider myself like a bash guru by any means no, but, but I, I, like, I what's one that it. like you know you learned like in the last year and you're like well it's a cool bash. last year um xargs um lets you, yeah, yeah it lets you Explain do that, parallel, yeah. parallel processing of a lot of stuff um so you can like simulate two processes um let's see uh cut is one that i use a lot cut and unique k basically lets you do like a count count star from a database type situation um yeah i would say those are like my most commonly (laughs) used ones nice yeah my (laughs) go-tos um cool um well um yeah, we always end with a couple questions. I mean, we've, cut, we've touched on some of these, but I'd be really curious to kind of hear mm-hmm. your uh, perspective on this. So what's like an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people don't pay enough attention to? Mm, I think um, I touched on this earlier, but like the people part of machine learning, if you are able to get more data or better data from people rather than banging your head against a smaller model that's that's always going to go better than trying to figure out like an advanced model for it you've also touched on this a fair amount but i'm curious how you'll how you'll synthesize it so um what is the biggest challenge of um, machine learning in the working in the real world right now putting stuff in production 
putting stuff in production putting stuff in production yeah and, and like within that what's the hardest part about putting stuff in production oh because there's there's so much that you need to get right in order to make because it's it's not just like a software system well it's it's just as complicated but even more because software is you have a piece of code you put it in Docker, you put it somewhere and it goes. This is, you have to keep track of data that's flowing in from Kafka or Kinesis or streaming. You have to make sure that all of that data is correct. You have to make sure it's serialized in the right format. You have to make sure that the database that the data is streaming into process it correctly. Um, you have to check all of that data. Then you create your models. Um, your models might work one day, you might get drift the next day. So you have to plan for that. And like I said, I think we're still in the early stage ages of planning for that. Um, then you have to expose your model to some service or some endpoint that's going to consume it. Um, the model piece itself, you have to put somewhere like Docker or whatever. You have to um, make sure to orchestrate all of that. So this is very similar to software, um, except, and so I think we, like in modern software development, we have a lot of pieces of the stack that we're now responsible for because of DevOps. So DevOps means like, in theory, it's supposed to make it easier for you, but it, what it means is that the software developer also now has to be a sysadmin and understand some of those pieces and the cloud brought in the fact that you also now have to be a network expert. Um, so actually a lot of my issues are troubleshooting like why can't this service connect to this service over the company firewall, um, basically. So there's all of that and you have to know the data and you have to know how the model that you're creating works. So putting that all together in production is really hard. Um, and so I would say that's the biggest thing. Well, well said, I have a feeling um... A lot of people listening to this podcast are going to want to hire you. <laughs> um, so if that's the case, um, where where can people find you? What's the best way to reach out? Besides, well, maybe it's Twitter where you're um, absolutely hilarious. Yeah, Twitter is the best way. I'm just at vboykas, v-b-o-y-k-s. And I also write a newsletter called Normcore Tech about all this kind of stuff, data, and and a lot more. And I can I can vouch for the newsletter personally. I'm a I'm a long time, well, long time subscriber, last six months subscriber since oh, you cool. mentioned it. Thank you. And I, I definitely enjoy it too. So um, it's an honor to uh, talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.